Well, before we read Psalm 51, um, certainly a favorite, hopefully of many. I'll give you the background here shortly. Um, it's a Psalm of David. Uh, it's a unique Psalm as far as type. There's only seven of this type uh, in all 150. And so I'll, I'll talk about that here shortly as well. But the title of my sermon is The Marks of the Repentant. And, and what I'm going to try to do, what I see in Psalm 51 are eight marks of the truly repentant. Uh, and I'm going to try to unpack those. And again, you can fill in the blanks and follow along. The big idea is the repentant look to the Lord. Um, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians, godly grief versus worldly grief. What is true repentance? What is insincere repentance? Well, let me posit two scenarios. And so you might have one person who sins, and maybe they're found out. And, um, you know, yeah, they're bummed. They're bummed. They're bummed for what they did. They're upset over what they did. But they're more concerned about the consequences. Because of their sin, they're now ashamed. Uh, because of their sin, maybe they've lost certain relationships. They're not so much concerned about their sin and how it relates to God. They, they've offended a holy God. They're not thinking about that. It's more, ah, I've lost certain things, certain relationships. I'm embarrassed. Those are the consequences I'm dealing with. That, I would say, is worldly repentance, worldly grief. Genuine repentance cares first and foremost about the Lord. The, center, the sinner is made to realize, I have sinned against a holy and good God. As a Christian, I've sinned against my king. What was I thinking? And they hate their sin, and they're turning from their sin. Again, yeah, they're aware of the consequences. That's just part of it. But the main concern is they've offended a holy God, a good God, a loving God. Do you see the difference? Again, yeah, the consequences, but that's not the main concern. First and foremost, genuine or godly grief, genuine repentance is marked by this realization that I've sinned against God. I've sinned against my king. We'll, we'll look at that passage in 2 Corinthians here shortly, but not yet. Let's start with our passage. This is Psalm 51, again, a, a rather long psalm, uh, but I'm going to read it in its entirety. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn there. But Psalm 51, if you want to follow along, it begins, here's the appeal, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Again, and this is really significant, verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. 
Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Praise God for his word. This is a penitential psalm. Uh, There's only seven of these in the Psalter. Only seven. It's called a penitential psalm because of its confessional nature and how it was later used within Christian communities. But again, it's, it's David confessing. All of us, I think, most of us are familiar with uh, the infamous period of David's life. This is 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So in chapter 11, you know, uh, Israel's out fighting. David's hanging out at home. He's on top of his home, and he looks out, and he sees a beautiful woman. That's what the text says, a beautiful woman bathing. And he brings her in, and he sleeps with her, and he knows that she's married. This is adultery. Well, um, she gets pregnant. He's made aware of this. And so Uriah, her husband, is a fighting man. He's part of the army. And uh, he brings him in. Hey, bro, go, go enjoy your wife. Enjoy a, a respite. But he won't. He's a man of integrity. Doesn't feel like it's right that he does that while his soldiers fight, his fellow soldiers fight. David even tries to get him drunk. So he'll go home and be with his wife. And he refuses to do it. And so David realizes, well, my plan's not working. If he'd gone to be with her, She's pregnant. Uh, He's going to think, well, it's my baby. Well, he's not been with her. And so David has Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, killed. Uh, Has Uriah placed on the front lines, draws the rest of the soldiers back. He's left by himself and he's killed. And so David is guilty both of adultery and murder. What's interesting is in the very next chapter, at the end of chapter 11, we see God is not happy. God despises this sin. And in the following chapter, in chapter 12, Nathan the prophet, he tells a story. And I want to read it because it's so good. <laughs> it's, it's, it's ironic, David's reaction. And then you have that, that famous line, you're the man. But let me, I just spoiled it, sorry. Um, uh, you all are familiar with this story. Let's go to 2 Samuel 12. I want to read really just the first seven verses and then verse 13. So 2 Samuel 12. Again, this is the background, 1 to 7 and then verse 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, there were two men. I mean, (laughs) he begins it that way. Hey, there were two men. Sounds like a joke, but it's not. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children like a pet, right? It's like my pigs. I'm never going to eat them. They're just our little potbelly pets. Um, it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup. My pigs will never do that, by the way. That's disgusting. But this lamb did that. It's part of the family. Lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb. And this is where we're just aghast. What? And prepared it for the man who had come to him. 
Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And here it is. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Whoa! You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And he goes on, I did this and I did that, and look what you've done. You have spurned my goodness and grace. And then we come uh, to verse 13. Here it is. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. There's no making excuses. Um, There's no trying to justify his actions. There is the realization, by the grace of God, I have sinned against the Lord. It's obvious from 2 Samuel and our psalm that David is truly repentant. He's sincere. He's sincere. David uses his own experience to pen a psalm that can be adopted by any and all of God's people as a guide for confession of sin and repentance. In fact, as a pastor over the past 20 years, I have used this particular psalm to walk with men through repentance. It's a great psalm, amen? It's a great psalm. Well, I borrowed this from Derek Kidner, who's a great commentator, uh, his structure. This is his structure. This is how he, again, structures uh, Psalm 51. I, I think it's helpful. Verses 1 and 2, we have the appeal. Verses 3 to 5, the confession. I kept that in your notes, didn't I? Okay, good. Uh, verses 6 to 9, and I know you guys always memorize these when you go home, so that's great. Verses 6 to 9, there's restoration. Verses 10 to 13, there's inward renewal. Verses 14 to 17, humble worship. And then verses 18 to 19, a people's prayer. So here's the question. It's going to govern the rest of our time and and really my sermon is, what does this passage teach us about the truly repentant? What are the marks of the truly repentant? And, And I see eight in our passage, eight. Number one, the repentant look to the Lord for mercy and forgiveness. And that's verses one and two. The repentant look to the Lord for mercy and forgiveness. So let's read these again, verses 1 and 2. Again, here's the appeal. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. I mean, David's being very exhaustive here. Did you catch all the verbs? Uh, Have mercy blot out, wash me, cleanse me. The repentant, here's what we're learning here. The repentant don't look to themselves to try to solve the problem. They view God, again, by grace as the only solution. Only God can forgive. To what does David appeal? Did you catch it? To what does David appeal? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. This gets at God's character. David is appealing to God's character. The word translated as steadfast love, chesed, it's like you're hawking, I'm not going to say what you hawk, but chesed, right? It means God's loving kindness. 
It really gets at God's grace. The word translated as mercy, rahamim, means compassion. Why look to God for mercy and compassion? Because he is what? He's merciful and compassionate, right? That's his character. David knows that, therefore he appeals to God on the basis of his what? His character. The takeaway here is this. Before you can repent, you must be exposed to the character of God. God reveals himself where? In his word as what? Faithful, kind, loving, gracious, compassionate. We know this because of Scripture. We know it because of the cross. It is to this God that we are called to call out to for forgiveness and mercy. And you know what? God delights in doing this. Amen? God delights in doing this. The gospel reveals God as both kind and compassionate. Again, the gospel calls us to repent from our sins. To repent, we must know God. What this passage reveals, what the whole Bible reveals, is that we can know God. Why? Because God has graciously revealed himself to us. More than that, he's revealed to us his will, our sin, and the solution. He's revealed himself as gracious and compassionate and willing and eager to forgive us. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that. He could have left us to ourselves, our sin, our ignorance, and he would have been just in doing that. But instead, he reveals himself to us in his word. He reveals our condition. We are what? We're sinners. And he reveals our need for him. He reveals himself time and time again as gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What action from God is David calling for? Again, he uses four verbs, and I'm not sure if you heard them. I've repeated them once. I'm going to say them again. Have mercy, blot out, wash, and cleanse. I think it's worth unpacking each of these, and I'm going to do that. So have mercy. Haknan. Have mercy. I don't don't expect you to remember the Hebrew. It's fine. Haknan. Be gracious. That's what it means to have mercy, be gracious. David is begging for favor from God. He is asking for what he knows he doesn't deserve. And then we have blot out, macha, <laughs> blot out. This is a really cool word. It means to wipe out, to erase. It's used to describe the removal of writing from a book. David, this is good, is asking God to wipe out his sinful record. Take it away, God. Remove it. And then we have the word wash. Wash, kavas. It's used for washing clothes. He's asking for God to wash away his guilt and shame. That which makes him unfit for God's presence. And then lastly, we have the verb cleanse. So again, have mercy on me, blot out. Blot out what? My transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse is the Hebrew verb taher, taher, and it means to make clean or pure. David, his prayer is for forgiveness and cleansing, and he prays on the basis of God's mercy and compassion. Amen? He knows God is merciful and compassionate. Number two, the repentant, and this is really, really good. 
I would say this is the distinguishing mark of the truly repentant. And Paul gets at this as well in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. But the repentant see their sin as an offense against who? It's against God. That's verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4, for I know my transgressions and my sin, it's ever before me. This is the key verse, I believe, in Psalm 51. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Again, this is massively significant. How can David say this? What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? He's dead. Didn't he sin against them? Yes, but ultimately, who did he sin against? Who made them? Who decreed that marriage be between a man and a woman for a lifetime? And to sleep with someone who's not your wife is adultery. Whose law did David break? God's. Three important observations here, and I did include this in your notes as well. I think this is worth writing down. First, the repentant understands sin for what it is. Again, David understands that his sin is first and foremost against God. It's an offense against God. It's an act of rebellion against God. Sin is theological mutiny. <laughs> it's, I mean, when you think about it, sin is to join forces with the evil one and his minions who are opposed to him. Sin's a big deal, right? And again, sin is against who? It's against God, the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, the savior of the world. Number two, and again, this is important. Secondly, the repentant take responsibility. They don't make excuses. David acknowledges that God is just in his judgments. If you recall the fall, Genesis 3, what stands out with Adam and Eve after God comes to them? They, yeah, man, they, what do they do? Man, they, they're blame casting. Man, it's the snake's fall, Adam. It's this crazy woman you gave me. It's like crazy, but it's this woman you gave me. Like, they don't take responsibility. They don't I, don't. I don't think they were genuinely repentant. It's, they're looking for a scapegoat, right? David's like, God, you're just in your judgments. Against you, you only have I sinned. Third, the repentance, the repentant experienced godly grief. David appears to be more concerned with his sin as it relates to God, as opposed to being found out in the shame in the embarrassment of being found out. He acknowledges his sin as evil before God. He knows what he deserves. So I, I told you I'd read it. This is, um, and I've used this in counseling, but 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 to 11, Paul differentiates between worldly grief, we could even call it worldly repentance, and godly grief or godly repentance. So here it is, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 11. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what eagerness, what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal 
what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Again, David has a right view of sin. Here's a summary of what we just talked about. It's against God. It's his own doing. He takes responsibility. It's evil. And because of it, he deserves God's punishment. That's a right view of sin, right? Sin's against God. It's our doing. We're sinners. It's wrong. It's evil. And because of it, we deserve what? God's judgment. Pray. Pray that you would view sin this way. Pray that you would not try to excuse or justify your sin or blame cast. It was because of her or because of him or I had a bad day. No, we're sinners and we deserve God's just judgment. And pray that you would respond to sin this way. Number three, number three, the repentant realize the depths of their depravity. That's verse five. This is good. The repentant, they realize the depths of their depravity. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Again, the the truly repentant don't view themselves as inherently good, but realize, hopefully, like all of us, that they've been born outside of the outside the garden. Anybody born in the garden of Eden? I mean, anybody? I think all of us were kicked out, right? All of us sinners. Okay, good. Um, They realize the truly repentant that they've been steeped in sin, in rebellion, since when? Since birth. Since birth. This is a good quote from Willem Van Gimmeren. I like old Willem. He says, The confession of depravity is not an excuse for his treachery, but serves to heighten the distance between the Lord and himself. Again, the truly repentant realize the distance between themselves and a holy God caused by sin. They view sin as something that has affected them since birth. It's internal, right? It's a part of our our makeup, our nature. It affects the whole person. David sees his act of rebellion for what it is. He acted according to his nature, right? David's a sinner. We're sinners. When we sin, we're acting according to our what? Well, hopefully as Christians, our old nature, because in Christ we have a new nature. Again, what I like about David here, and again, this is inspired of the Spirit, David doesn't blame his environment. He doesn't blame a set of conditions. He acknowledges what has been a very real problem since the beginning. In verse 6, David acknowledges the distance between who he is and what God desires. What does God desire? He says, you delight in truth in the inward being. And what colors all of David's sin? Deception, untruth, right? Right? The chasm is great between us and God. It's impassable. Is true? It's impassable. David acknowledges that help must come from the outside because he is so sinful within. David writes, and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. I would argue that this is the realization that only the Holy Spirit can bring. We're sinful and we've always, we've always been sinful. What are we by nature? What does every human being have in common? We're sinners. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need help, and this help must come from God. Um, As Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, John 3 is one of my favorite passages to preach. Mark 2 is my go-to, right? If If I'm on a different continent and someone says, hey, can you preach today? Which has happened multiple times. If you go on a mission trip 
And your pastor just expected, you know, hey, can you preach in five minutes? Yes. Yeah, sure I can. Let's go. Mark 2, 1 to 12. Um, I also love John 3. In John 3, Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus, a religious leader, right? One of the Pharisees. And he tells him, in order to enter God's kingdom, you must be, and again, most translations, you must be born again. But there's a Greek word there. It's anothen, and it means from above. You must be born from above. What does that mean? It's God's doing. God must do something in order for you to enter his kingdom. Amen? So again, David understands the massive implications of his sinful condition and sees the solution as only something that God can provide. Only God can provide the solution. Number four, and this is really good. I'm so thankful for this. The repentant are confident in God's forgiveness and restoration. Lord, I really hope you can forgive me. I mean, I know it's kind of a shot in the dark. People have told me you're gracious, but I don't know. I mean, I'm a pretty bad sinner. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. It's 50-50. Is that how we approach God? No. As Christians, we have promises in God's word. Amen? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verses 7 and 8. Purge me with hyssop. Anybody bring hyssop tonight? It's like a little plant you can use as like a brush. It had some medicinal qualities, but you know, hyssop. You brush stuff with it. Purge me with hyssop. And I'll, I'll give you a little context here in a minute. And I shall be clean. I, sh- I mean, again, purge me, God, and I shall be clean. Not, I might be clean, uh, 99% chance, maybe. No, I shall be. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Do you hear the confidence? Not in David, but in who? David's confidence is in who? It's in God. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. The repentant believe that God can and does forgive. There's assurance. In verse 7, David says to God, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. What is the background to this? Let's go to Willem one more time. Oh, Willem. Good old Willem Van Gimmeren. He writes, David prays that the Lord, like a priest, may cleanse him from his defilement. The unclean, such as lepers, used to present themselves before the priest on the occasion of their purification. The priest, being satisfied that the unclean person had met the requirements for purification, would take a bunch of hyssop, which was a plant, and sprinkle the person with water in the symbolic act of ritual cleansing. Here, the psalmist petitions the Lord to be his priest by taking the hyssop and declaring him cleansed from all sin. Next, David prays, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So the metaphor whiter than snow applied to clean garments. Clean garments. Lord, make me clean. But again, by extension, as one brother says, it signified forgiveness, cleansing, and newness. Make me new. Cleanse me. Forgive me. Verse 8. This is good. Verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Why does he say that? What would joy and gladness be the result of? Yeah. Forgiveness. The realization that I'm what? I'm forgiven. The image conveyed in verse 8 is one of joyful return, right? It's Think of a welcome home party. You've been gone for a long time. You make the journey back home. You come inside the house. 
all the relatives have gathered. They're, again, they have the poppers, they're throwing confetti, there's a cake, they're excited, there's songs being sung, stories being told. That's the context. It's the joy of reconciliation, of an outcast return to society. If you recall the climax of the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, what happens in Luke 15? What is there at the end? Let's kill the fattened calf because my son has returned. I thought he was dead. He's alive. So let's have a big what? Let's have a party. Let's have a party. That is what repentance results in. Joy. Joy. Amen? Joy because of restoration and reconciliation. I was cut off, but through Christ, I've been brought back near. Amen? And that's occasion for what? Rejoicing. So again, David trusts in the Lord's ability to forgive and restore. That's really important. When you're repenting, you're turning from something to something, right? And what are we turning to? We're turning to trust in Jesus. I mean, do we believe that if we confess and repent that he can forgive us? He says he will. Amen? One more time. I think it's worth reading. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Not I might be. It's not the subjunctive. I, I could be. No, it's I shall be. I will be. All right. Um, let's keep moving. Number five, the repentant. Now, this is good. This is really important. I, I think this is where a lot of churches get it wrong. Hey, pray a prayer. You pray that prayer? All right, deuces. Good job. You're all set. Your name's in the Lamb's Book of Life now. Hey, you, you have fire insurance. You Join the church. What's your name again? Let's just write it down. I'm being kind of a jerk. I'm not. I'm, this is honestly what I've seen, I've observed. Is that all? Is that it? No. What, what does the gospel do? It provides forgiveness and? There it is. Transformation. Okay, so number five, the repentant pray for divine help to live differently. And they should live differently. Amen? Verses 10 to 12. David, after he confesses, after he pleads for forgiveness, he doesn't just go home, he doesn't just rejoice, knowing he's forgiven, but he prays for what? Creating me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Change me, God. I don't want to go back to this. I don't want to live this way anymore. That was no fun. I love the song. I'm not going to sing it, but creating me a clean heart. Creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. We'll come back to that, a willing spirit. Okay, so true repentance, if you get anything tonight, get this, true repentance has transformation as the goal. True repentance has, if you're truly repentant, you're not thinking at that moment, how can I mess up next? What's my, my, my next act of rebellion going to be against God? I'll just pray a prayer and I'll be fine. No, if you're truly repentant, you hate your sin, you want to live differently, amen? I hope so. Again, repentance is not confession and then a return to old sinful behavior. It's a turning away. And it's the realization that one needs God's help to live differently. It's true. Again, as you confess sin, think about this. I don't know your hearts. The Lord does. As you confess your sin, are you planning in your heart for the next act of rebellion? 
Or are you calling out to God for divine aid to live differently? In verse 10, this is really powerful, okay? In verse 10, David is calling for an act of new creation. He uses the same verb for creation that we find in Genesis 1, which is bara, barashith bara, Elohim. In the beginning, God created. David is calling for a divine act. God, create in me. Do it only you can do as the creator. Create in me a what? A new heart, a clean heart. Let's talk about these words. The adjective translated as clean as tahor. Tahor, it means pure, genuine. The word for heart in Hebrew is lave. What is the heart? It's not that pumping organ that we need. It's the inner self. It's the seat of feelings and impulses. David here, when he says, creating me a what? A clean heart is praying for inner renewal, holiness, for the ability, the power to live differently. If you know anything about the new covenant, if you've read Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, the promise is not just forgiveness, but transformation. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. Now, the next line is an example of what? Creating me a clean heart, O God. And then he says, and renew a right spirit within me. What is that an example of? What kind of parallelism? Well, that, yeah. So, I mean, that's the language. But when you repeat a line, it's synonymous. It's synonymous parallelism. Why does David repeat himself? To make a point, to emphasize, right? Creating me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Again, David is praying for inner transformation. He's praying for a spirit that stands firm and is thus not moved toward disobedience. As conveyed in verse 11, the truth, this is so important. I think it's important, much like 1 John. 1 John, and I'm going through 1 John with some men here. 1 John is a litmus test for the believer. Read 1 John. Look for evidence. If you read 1 John and you can say, yeah, these things aren't true of me, you're probably not a Christian. I didn't say it. John did. The Spirit did. I would go through these marks of the truly repentant, and if you can't say, man, none of these things apply to me, I would say you're not repentant. You haven't repented. What is the key? It's conveyed in verse 11. The truly repentant see God's presence as the greatest possible good. This is the key to joy and renewal. God's presence is the key to transform living. David doesn't simply long for forgiveness, but for the resulting presence of God. David desires God. Amen? Long before John Piper desired God, David desires God. I guess that was supposed to be a joke. No one thought it was funny. That's fine. That's one of his famous books, Desiring okay. His Ministry, Desiring God. All right. Um, this is the other goal. Gianna, you got it? Thank you. Okay. I got a snicker. Yeah. This is the other goal of repentance, namely God's 
presence? Do you long for God? Can you say Psalm 27.4 with David? One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever or all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David's request in verse 12 is also very important. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. This is important for going forward. Let's make sure we understand what David is saying here. Of course, it's not hard to understand how joy and salvation are linked. If you're saved from sin in the eternal wrath of God, you should have what? You should have joy. I'll try to do my Eeyore impression. Bro, thanks for saving me out of that burning building. No, I mean, if you've been saved from a burning building, there's going to be what? Excitement, joy, passion. I was dying. I was dead. There was no hope. But you rescued me. You saved me. I told this story recently about my cousin. Again, he's an EMT worker, fireman. He wasn't even on duty. Happened to be driving in Shreveport down a busy highway and saw a pedestrian get hit by a vehicle. He gets out of his car. The dude's leg is gone. I know it's a graphic. He knew what to do. He's not freaking out. He saves this guy. He makes a tourniquet, stops the bleeding. The ambulance comes. This kid was headed to med school. And he still tells Stuart, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Why? Because he was, he was saved. He was saved. But the joy of God's salvation is unique. It's not temporary, is it? It's what? It's eternal. God's salvation brings us to who? It brings us to God. What makes salvation so great? Not just that we don't get his wrath, and praise God for that, but that we get who? We get God. We get him. We get his presence. This is what was lost at the fall, but we get him back. This is the greatest love story ever told. The Bible is about God pursuing his beloved us, and he goes to great lengths, infinite lengths, to get us back. He sent his son. Amen? What joy? What joy? Do you have this joy? If you're a follower of Jesus, then you have more reason for joy than anyone else. Can we say amen to that? Because you're forgiven. If you're in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus, you now stand right with God. You're no longer headed eternally to hell, but you've been saved forever from God's wrath. You get to be with God forever in a new heaven and a new earth with resurrection bodies, no longer given over to sickness and disease. You'll be with the Lord and his people forever. And every day will be better than the previous day. Read Ephesians 3.17. You'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> our joy springs from our right standing with God. We are saved, and this should cause us great joy. 1 Peter 1.8.9 Though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Again, there he links joy to our salvation. Lastly, David asked the Lord to uphold him with a willing spirit. Again, only the Lord can do this. This is akin to a teachable heart. Spirit, ruach in the Hebrew, refers to the mind or disposition of man. As one brother writes, this refers to a positive delight in God's will. It is a spirit that is inclined to do the will of God. 
Again, David acknowledges the Lord as the only one who provides inner renewal and restores his joy in the Lord's salvation. Number six, the repentant instruct others in the way of the Lord. Verse 13, if you're repentant, what do you desire to do? Teach others, help others repent, right? Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways. David was a transgressor. David was forgiven by the Lord. David now desires to do what? To teach other transgressors, other sinners, and to help them do what? Repent and turn to the Lord. Um, If you were here last week, this recalls our point from last week in Psalm 34, the rescued teach others. Again, it's the same thing here. Those who have turned from sin to the Lord are moved to help others do the same. And and I would say that the focus here is on others within the community of God's people. So like in James 5, 19 and 20, James is instructing Christians, the church, to go after other Christians who have left the fold, right? These are brothers that have left the fold, meaning they've disappeared. They've begun to go after the world. And James is like, bro, go get them. Go after them. Yeah, go get them. And if you do, and you bring them back, you save their soul from death and cover over a multitude of sins. That's a great incentive to go get them. Plus, the Lord commands us to. Amen? I thought that was rain. It's not. All right. Repentance results in joining God's rescue mission. Okay? You are turning from walking away in leading others away to now following the Lord and helping others follow the Lord. We who have been restored are called to be a part of the Lord's work of restoring others. Amen? You've been restored. You've been forgiven. What should you do? Help others. What? Turn, repent, and look to the Lord. Number seven, we got two left. Are you still with me? Okay. Number seven, what did the repentant do? They worship the Lord. Why? Because he forgives them. The repentant worship the Lord, verses 14 to 17. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will what? Declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. We learn an incredible lesson here. Repentance is turning from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. Self-centeredness is at the heart of all sin. Why do we sin? Because we're selfish. When we do sin, who are we thinking about? Others? The Lord? No, we're thinking about us. Every time a husband looks at pornography, he's not thinking about his beautiful bride or his glorious Savior. He's thinking about what? Himself. Sin is taking our eyes off of God and placing them selfishly on ourselves. Repentance is putting our eyes back on God. Amen? Repentance is putting our eyes back where? On the Lord. When David had an affair with who? Bathsheba. And then what happened to Uriah? He had him killed. Who was David thinking about? When he came, hey, bring old girl up here. I want to talk to her. No, that's not what he wanted to do. Hey, you know what, guys? Um, 
you know, let's, let's go ahead and just put Uriah on the front lines, and, uh, and then you guys kind of come back slowly, <laughs> subtly. Who was David thinking about? He wasn't about Bathsheba. He wasn't thinking about Uriah. He wasn't thinking about the Lord. He's thinking about himself. He's trying to get out of trouble, right? His selfish and sinful desires, hiding his shame, his secret sin. Again, what we see here now, here's the change. Now David is not concerned with his reputation or his glory, but God's. The truly repentant worship the Lord. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. My mouth will declare your praise. In verse 17, we learn what worship really is, and especially where it begins. It begins with the the heart. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What is meant by a broken spirit and contrite heart? Let's check out DK, Derek Kidner. I may just call him that from now on, DK. Um, He writes, God is looking for the heart that knows how little it deserves, how much it owes. That's worthy of a Facebook post right there. God is looking for the heart that knows how little it deserves, how much it owes. Repentance, friends, is not about mechanical actions void of sincerity. God is not simply concerned with our actions, but the heart from where these actions flow. Amen? And God knows, can we fool God? We can put on a facade, we can dress ourselves up really nice, but God knows our hearts. I mean, I think about Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. I mean, Abel obviously pleased God. He he brought the best. Um, I think he was much more intentional in his offering. Cain, it seems like, just kind of, yeah, I go through the actions, go through the motions, Here you go, Lord. God, you can't fool God. God knew the heart. He knew the heart. What if I half-heartedly gave a gift to Haley? With no love, no affection, it's her birthday, here you go. Oh my goodness. (laughs) When I give a gift to my wife, it comes from a heart that adores her, that loves her, that thanks the Lord of her. True worship begins with a heart that is crushed and broken before God. The Hebrew verb shavar is used twice. That's significant. He uses the same verb for broken twice. It's used to describe the breaking of bones, the breaking of cisterns, and the breaking of ships. I've broken a lot of bones in my life. Not proud of it. I just have. Mom, you've been there most of the time, I think. Actually, I guess every time you've been there. Yeah. It was because of you. I'm just kidding. Um, But, you know, when you break a bone and it's significant, you realize you need what? It's like, oh, no, mm-mm, that's not going to happen. I can't go anywhere because my leg's doing something. That should be, it's broken. I need what? You need help. You need help. If you break something, you need help. When something's broken, you acknowledge what? Your need for help. You're hopeless. You're helpless. You can't do it. And, and that's really what we're talking about here. To be repentant, you acknowledge I'm broken. I can't do anything to fix it. I need who? I need the Lord. Only he can save us. Only he can satisfy us. We're broken. We're helpless. We're in great need. Only the Lord can provide. I love Matthew 5. I taught on this last year, the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit is to recognize one's spiritual bankruptcy. It's to recognize your great need for God. 
That is the heart that pleases the king. David was truly broken before the Lord and moved to real worship. All right, number eight, the last point. And this is good. This is good because, again, so far, the focus has been very personal, right? David, I, me, what he's doing, he's been kind of the subject speaking. Um, But now we're going to see a transition because, number eight, the repentant contribute to the overall health of God's people. They're not just concerned about themselves. They're concerned about others, right? And so verses 18 and 19, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David draws an interesting correlation at the end of chapter 51, Psalm 51. Did you catch it? In verse 18, David transitions from personal confession, repentance, and prayer to a focus on God's holy city and the community of God's people. There's a correlation between the spiritual health of persons in God's community and the community as a whole. Personal holiness is concerned with corporate holiness. Amen? Personal holiness is concerned with corporate holiness. If I have, listen, if I have a serious ailment and it's super contagious, it's bad, really bad, am I going to come home and kiss my wife and kids? Hopefully not, right? I've been to the doctor, hey, bro, this is bad, this is nasty. We're going to treat this, it's really contagious. Try to stay away from people. Babe, give me a hug and kiss, pick it up. No, I'm not going to do that. Why? I mean, I'm going to keep a distance. I'm probably going to sleep out with the pigs. Probably not that, but I'll, I'll, I'll stay away for a little bit. The point is this. We repent first and foremost because our sin is an offense against God. And yet we also care about the larger body of believers. And we want to contribute to their growth, not their decline. Amen? Sin, if left unconfessed in the church, if not repented of, it's like gangrene. It's like an infection. It's going to fester and grow and spread. It needs to be dealt with. Again, if you're a sinner, if you're in sin, confess because you love Jesus and he's king and he's worthy. And you realize that sin is an offense against God, but also sin affects others. It's true. So stop it. Turn from it. Again, David is concerned with both personal and corporate holiness. Last question, and then we're going to pray. How does Psalm 51 point to Christ in the gospel? Four points here. I I put them in your notes so you'd have them. Number one, in Jesus, the true king had come. Now again, David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. I mean, if you juxtapose Saul and David, David wins out, right? I mean, David fought Goliath when uh, Saul was afraid. But was David a perfect king? Did he have a perfect track record? Many were probably hoping, oh man, this is the guy. But it wasn't. He wasn't. Did you know that the king in ancient times, especially in Israel, was called both to represent God and to represent God's people? There's the vertical and the horizontal. To represent God and to represent God's people. Who failed in this? David. But who would come and succeed? Christ, Jesus. Jesus, too, would be tempted but he would succeed where others had failed. Jesus is our true king, the one who came, one, 
to represent God to us and who now represents us before God. Amen? Number two, by trusting in Jesus, we can be forgiven and made new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 1 John 1, 9, Romans 10, 9 and 10. In Christ, we can have assurance of salvation, right? It's not, oh man, I hope this works. <laughs> no, if we trust in Jesus, the God-man, the perfect one, we know that we know that we know that we're forgiven. We have, as Paul tells us in Romans 5, we have peace with God. Whereas before, we were at enmity. There was division, but through Christ, there's now peace and right standing. Amen? Number three, those who trust in Jesus have a new heart in God's spirit to live differently. Those who trust in Jesus aren't just forgiven, but transformed to live differently. Next, the gospel works to create a community of God's people committed to following God, yes, but also helping one another follow God. So if you're a part of a church, should you be committed to following the Lord? Yes. But should you also be committed to helping others follow the Lord? Yes. The final thing is we're just going to pray through this. And again, because uh, it's a very long psalm, uh, it would take a while, I'm going to pick a few verses. So how might we prayerfully apply Psalm 51? I have verse 1, 4, 10, 12, 13, and 15. So let's pray this together. I'll read the verse first, and then I'll pray. I'll read the prayer. Again, I'm just trying to teach you. I did this as a youth pastor for uh, man, probably six, seven months where the psalm I was teaching on that night, I would teach these kids how to pray God's word. Again, God speaks to us through his word, and we speak back, and we call that what? We call it prayer. And how, I don't want to say frustrating, man, it's too strong a word, but maybe awkward. If, uh, if Adam, you know, asked me, hey, man, how's your family doing? And I start talking to him about the Astros. He's like, I, I didn't ask you about the. I asked about your family. We need to speak back to God in relationship to what he's saying to us in his word. So I think as you read God's word, speak back, but pray in light of what you just heard. Does that make sense? All right, so uh, verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Father, forgive me, forgive us for our sins. Only you can make me clean. And only through the finished work of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, I thank you that you are gracious, merciful, kind, and compassionate. And then verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Here's the prayer. Father, help me to realize that all sin is ultimately against you. You made me, and therefore I belong to you. Help me to hate sin first and foremost because it is an act of rebellion against you. Help me to not make excuses for my sin, but to humbly own up to it and to quickly turn from it. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Father, I need a new heart. I need your help to live differently. Help me by your spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Help me to walk by the spirit. Help me to look to you for what's needed to live differently. I praise you for your gracious gifts. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Here's the prayer. May the joy of knowing you and getting you through faith in Jesus Christ motivate me to live for you. Incline my heart to obey you, O Lord. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Father, I realize 
that I've been saved to join in your mission. Use me to help others turn away from sin by reminding them of the gospel. And then finally, verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Father, you deserve my praise. You are a rescuing God. May my life bring praise and honor to you at all times. Thank you for saving me. And all God's people said, amen. I would end with this. Do you need to repent today? Do you need to repent for the first time? That is where a relationship with God begins. It's the acknowledgement that you're a sinner. And as a sinner, you've offended a holy God, the God, the God who made you, who made everything. And you sinned. We've sinned against him. And that puts us at odds with God. That separates us from God because God is holy. We need a savior. We need rescue. In comes Jesus. Jesus paid our debt. He lived the perfect life we could not live. He lived for us, and then he died for us. Because we failed to live a perfect life, we deserve God's just punishment. Jesus also took that. So not only did he live the life we couldn't live, praise him for that, he died the death we deserve in our place, and then he rose again, which means what? It worked. It worked. He is who he claimed to be. He is the Savior. So turn from your sin, repent of it, and trust in Jesus. Again, Jesus in Mark 1, right? He's, he's kicking off his messianic mission. And he says this in Mark 1:15. the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Repent, turn from your sin, and believe in the gospel. And that is the gospel I just told you. Jesus lived, died, and rose again to save sinners like us. Turn from your sin and trust in him, and you'll be saved. Amen?